Good morning. If you would like to turn with me this morning, we will be reading the entirety of John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gebatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, 
let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch full of the sour wine. Sorry, on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For the, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of God. We've come to it. We've been following John through his first-person, eyewitness, intimate account as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we've come to the crucifixion, to the death of Jesus of Nazareth. And isn't this true? We, we remember tragic, traumatic events. We remember them in, in different ways. And, and we, remem we remember them vividly. We even know now, scientifically, biologically, that our, our bodies physiologically remember trauma and tragedy. Difficult events shape us, don't they? Um, a tragic event can haunt a family. 
A tragedy can define an entire generation of people. Christianity remembers the death of its founder not because we can't help it. It's it's not this uh, religion-wide post-traumatic stress disorder. We remember this tragic event because Jesus wanted us to remember it. He specifically instituted a sacrament, the Lord's Supper, to help us remember that the Lamb of God, as, as John the Baptist said earlier in this Gospel, to remember that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world finished His mission. As He said when He hung there before He died, it is finished. At one point in this vivid, intimate retelling of events, John, the apostle, makes a really curious statement. Did you catch this? He said in verses 35, uh, 34 and 35, um, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And then he said this curious thing right after that. He said, he who, has, he who saw it born witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. And it's very reasonable to suggest there that, that he who saw it has borne witness. He's talking about himself. John is talking about himself. He's saying, I saw it and my testimony is true. I'm telling the truth. You know, later on, an idea called docetism would develop in early Christianity. It, it, it was deemed a heresy. It was the idea that Jesus only seemed to be crucified, that Jesus only seemed to die a horrible physical death, but it actually didn't happen. And that idea, that idea over the centuries creeped its way into false but common thinking. It influenced Muhammad's concept of Christianity, ultimately influenced the Quran's teaching uh, that possibly Jesus only seemed to die, that he wasn't actually crucified, and that the Jews of the time were confused. Anyway, John made his testimony here abundantly clear that Jesus died physically. Blood and water came out of the body. Now, why was he so careful to clarify the spear and the blood and the water? Well, that you also may believe. Time and time again in this Gospel, he points things out, and then he says, so that you may believe. And he's saying, I was there, I saw it happen, and I'm telling you so that you also may believe. He was more than giving a history of the events of Jesus of Nazareth's ministry, but he was urging his listeners, John was urging his listeners toward belief. The crucifixion must move us toward a response to God's love toward a response to God's love. And I want to ask you now as we start today, have you ever responded? Have you ever responded to the love of God in in your gut? Have you ever truly responded to the death of Jesus Christ? Has it affected you? Has it emotionally put a weight on your soul? I want to talk about what Jesus endured. And I want to talk about what Jesus endured for us. And I want to talk about how that can move us towards believing in Him.
what he endured, what he endured for us, and how this can move a person towards belief in a crucified Jesus. So the Christian is moved by what Jesus endures. We are moved as his followers by what he endured. He was beaten brutally. He died terribly. The Roman criminal justice machine employed three forms of flogging. Right? So flogging is, is being beaten with a whip over and over. In the Roman judicial system, there are three forms of flogging. The first was basically a very light whipping designed for troublemakers. Kind of like you hear like in the mafia movies, they got upset with some guy and took him out behind the restaurant and slapped him around a bit so that he would learn his lesson and sent them on their way. The first form of flogging was basically for troublemakers. It was to warn troublemakers, hey, cut it out. You receive some blows with a whip, they let him go, hoping that he had learned his lesson. That was the first form of, of, of a public scourging, uh, flogging. Um, it seems that, that Jesus received that level of flogging before Pilate brought him out again and said to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, Behold, the king of the Jews. Okay. Now there is a second form of flogging which was heavier. It was designed for more serious offenses. But a third form of flogging was absolutely vicious. Several soldiers whipping a stripped criminal tied to a post again and again until they were ordered to stop by their commander. A group of soldiers whipping somebody until they were tired. Not until the criminal was exhausted. They would whip the criminal until the soldiers were exhausted. And often the cords were, were outfitted with pieces of bone and metal. Sometimes this level of scourging killed a criminal even before the person was sent to crucifixion. And in most times, this level of flagellation was accompanied by crucifixion. Scholars even say when you put all the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, together to see the order of events, most scholars say it is very plausible that Jesus suffered both the first form of scourging and the third. Because Pilate thought he was innocent, Pilate had him whipped and sent him back out hoping that that would appease the, the justice of the Jews. They wanted justice against this man and hope, hopefully that was going to be enough. And when that didn't satisfy him, upon being sentenced to crucifixion, he, re he received the final sentence, the last form of flogging. Now, Roman crucifixion punished and humiliated gross offenders and revolutionaries. Crucifixion was so brutal that the emperor himself, the Roman emperor himself, had to approve a crucifixion of a Roman citizen. Now, of course, Jesus is not a Roman citizen. But if the Apostle Paul, who was a Roman citizen, ever had been crucified, it would have had to been approved by the emperor himself. The act was so brutal. It was excruciating. It was exhausting. And because it was so difficult to breathe, the person being crucified would keep slipping down, suffocating, which is why there was a part of the cross, of the vertical beam of the cross had a little platform. And in a sense, the person would lean against that 
platform with his feet, trying to prop his body up so that he could breathe better, and that would just endure the suffering, prolong the suffering. Normally, bodies were left on crosses for days, bringing vultures to consume the flesh as a public example by the Roman Empire of what would happen to people who disobeyed the law and revolted against Rome. Not only was Jesus beaten, not only did he die, but this is really important to understand as we read John's account. He was mocked. He wasn't just beaten and crucified. He was mocked throughout the entire process. And he was publicly disgraced. In their unbelief, the Roman soldiers made fun of him. They dressed him up like a puppet king who had been defeated. And then you see Pilate in vindictive rivalry against the religious leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem. You see Pilate taunting the Sanhedrin, taunting them with the phrase he repeats again and again, the king of the Jews, your king. Shall I crucify your king? And for some Jews during that time, and even still to this day, their unbelief is founded upon the shame that Jesus endured. The shame that they cannot imagine their Messiah would ever endure. The Apostle Paul, who was Jewish himself, clarified this by saying, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us in Galatians chapter 3. But he went on to say, for it is written, and then he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 21, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But our affection for Jesus as His people, our affection for Him actually rises out of the terror of the, resurrect, of the crucifixion. Our affection for Jesus rises out of our sorrow for what He endured. But we're not simply moved for this as we are moved when we read the news and hear about a tragedy. Right? When you hear about these school shootings, or when you hear about a minority unjustly treated, and it's all over the news, how do you feel? You, you feel frustrated or sad or angry, but, but you're reading an article, right? This is something that happened somewhere else. This is something that happened a thousand miles away, or in another state. And so you are grieved and you are moved, but not personally. That is not how we grieve for Jesus in a remote way, in an unconnected way, in an impersonal way. The Christian is moved by what Jesus endured for her. By what Jesus endured for him, for me. The Romans issued an inscribed placard on the cross of each criminal stating their crime so that it would be known publicly why they were being executed. And for this man on that day, Pilate ordered the placard to be inscribed with the words in Latin, in Greek, and in Aramaic, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now for Rome, the crime was treason. Only Caesar is King and Lord. For the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, uh, the power brokers in Jerusalem, the crime was blasphemy. There was only one God. But for Jesus, it was no crime at all. He was the king of the Jews. The true treason was Rome's for rejecting 
the Creator. The true blasphemy was the Sanhedrin's for rejecting their Messiah. What truly also would have been on that placard, what should have been on that placard, were Brian Lopiccolo's sins. The cross should have inscribed everything I've done, everything I've said, everything I've thought, and yours as well. As the prophet Isaiah had said long before, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. My encouragement to you today and for this week, and maybe for this season of your life, is to ask God for a heart change. Ask Him for a heart change as you meditate on Christ's sufferings for you. Ask God for a heart change. The old hymn, Who was the guilty who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee. T'was I, Lord Jesus, it was I who denied thee. I crucified thee. good friend of mine who I was in ministry with for years, he's now a pastor outside of Philadelphia, he thinks that he really truly became a Christian late in his teens after reading the Gospel of John. He was raised in a Christian home by Christian parents, And he decided to read the Gospel for himself. And he read by himself in his room, sitting on his bed, the entire Gospel of John. I can't remember if it was in a day. Maybe it it took several weeks. But it was kind of like his, hey, I'm going to be an adult and actually read this thing. And, And he said he got to the crucifixion. And he just began weeping in his room by himself. He remembers his mom could hear him and she came to the door which was closed. She was holding a basket of laundry and she said, are you okay? And he said, I'm fine. He goes, but I think that's when I became a Christian. I sat there reading about Jesus and all he suffered for me and I was moved to tears and his life was never the same. The Christian's heart is moved. The emotions are involved in that, not just the brain. The Christian heart is moved like Mary, his mother's heart, was moved while she watched her son crucified. Like John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as his heart was moved, helpless to watch as his rabbi was crucified. The Christian's heart is moved as though we were there watching helpless while he suffered on the cross instead of us. So I want to ask you, what moves you? What moves us? What rouses your emotions? What brings you to grief or to anger or to hope, to joy? What, and that's a good question, like what, what moves me? What stimulates, as the Puritans used to say, what stimulates your affections? the emotions that God gave you. Do many things move you or does nothing move you? You Are you somewhere near those two extremes? Are you constantly and continually a raw nerve? 
Everything and everyone moves you to some drastic emotion. Are you the opposite? Does nothing move you? Are you, as Pink Floyd put it, comfortably numb? Continually. You don't, you don't let it out. You don't show that you're a human being. You don't show that things affect you, that things and people move you. You keep it in. You can't be authentic. Does Jesus' story move you? Does the crucifixion move us? Have we deeply felt the death of Christ in our hearts? Is it more than academic? Is it more than religious? Is it more than tradition? Do you believe that He suffered for you? The Christian is moved to belief by love. Here it is, and we may not think that immediately because we often think as, as scientific Western world people that we are moved to belief by proof and by convincing arguments. And that's very important. But ultimately, the Christian is moved to believe, I think, by love. We are moved to love by love. The Apostle Peter, who was not there with John, who had run away denying Jesus, a radically changed Peter, years later in writing to the churches in what is now Turkey, would capture this dynamic of being moved to belief by love. He would capture this dynamic in one of my favorite New Testament passages to talk about. He said in 1 Peter chapter 1, though you have not seen Jesus, you love Him. Think about that. We weren't there at the cross. We weren't there at the resurrection. We didn't see the water turned to wine. We don't know what John and Peter and Judas looked like. But it says, you have not seen Him, but you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, knowledge doesn't drive the Christian life. Love does. I hope you never forget that. I hope I never forget that. Knowledge is critical. Tim Keller once said, you don't leave your brain outside the door when you consider Christianity because it is rational and it is logical and it does make sense. But the Christian life is driven not by knowledge but by love. Knowledge must give birth through faith to love. We don't throw away our knowledge. We take our knowledge and follow it to embracing in our emotions the power of God who died for us. Christian belief is more than comprehension. It is trust. And trust implies a relationship. You trust a person because of what they are willing to do for you. You trust a person when you see they care about you. They see you. They believe you. And belief is about trust. The, um, the American theologian during the colonial period, Jonathan Edwards, he called this dynamic that you see in 1 Peter, he called it a divine and supernatural light that God has to give to somebody. 
He said this divine and supernatural light is is God moving your affections, stirring up your emotions, not just your intellect. He said it's like the difference between rationally identifying honey as sweet and experiencing honey's sweetness. You know, I had COVID last year, and I will tell you, I know what certain things taste like but I no longer experience what they taste like. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Well, on the cross, our knowledge and our experience together produce a love for a man we've never seen face to face yet. The old Puritan poet John Milton in his epic poem, Um, Paradise Lost, he imagines, and this isn't in the Bible, don't go looking for it in the Bible, Um, Milton imagined what the angels must have felt like when, when in all of eternity, before time began and before humanity fell, what the angels must have felt like when Jesus, the eternal Son of God, volunteered to become a human being to die for sinners. And he wrote this, speaking of Jesus, his meek aspect, silent yet spake, and breathed immortal love to mortal men as a sacrifice. Glad to be offered, he attends the will of his great Father. Admiration seized all heaven what this might mean and wither tend, wondering. Somebody once said, the reason Peter said, later in Peter chapter 1, the reason Peter says that even angels long to look into these things is because Jesus didn't become an angel to save angels. He became a human being to save us. Let Christ's love on the cross move you to wonder. let it move you to love him back. We are told, just in closing, somebody services again, right, for the third time in this gospel. Nicodemus the Pharisee. He appears again for the third time. The first time he came to Jesus in secrecy, in secrecy as a leader, a religious leader, in the dark, asking Jesus questions, very skeptical about Jesus. The second time, he's berated, by his, uh, he's berated by his religious colleagues for suggesting that maybe Jesus had a point in everything he was saying. And a third time, here is Nicodemus, after the death of Jesus, after a wealthy Christ follower asked Pilate permission, Joseph of Arimathea, to bury Jesus quickly in a nearby tomb because the Sabbath was approaching and the Jews wanted that dead body down off of the cross. And there we see in this quiet process, Nicodemus again. He was there. And this time he is administering an exorbitant burial process for the body of the rabbi, the unconventional, non-credited rabbi. Since that night of his original doubt and skepticism, 
with Jesus, something had moved Nicodemus toward belief. Now look, it's not belief in the resurrection, right? This isn't a risen Jesus yet. I'm not trying to say that Nicodemus believed in the same way that I am believing right now and urging you to believe. But something had happened in Nicodemus during that time. Something had drawn Nicodemus under the threat of exposure and shame himself to do such a beautiful, gracious, generous thing for the body of this rabbi. And I think it was this. I think on that day, Nicodemus remembered what Jesus before had said to him in the dark that evening when he had been wrestling with his own skepticism and doubt. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. When in his skepticism, Nicodemus said about being born again to Jesus, he said, how can these things be? But somehow in the process, Nicodemus' thirst for knowledge gave birth to love. The crucifixion must move a person towards responding to the love of God in Jesus Christ. So as we reflect on the death of God, on the crucifixion of God's only Son, and as we wait in quiet, sober, hopeful anticipation of what's going to happen on the third day and what's going to happen next Sunday when we open up this book again. Until then, ask God for a heart change. As you meditate on the sufferings of Christ, meditate on the fact that He suffered for you. And as the psalmist said, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we confess, we confess that in in a spiritual sense, um, in a cosmic sense, we were there. We, We were a part of the whole ordeal. It was necessary for you to send your Son who was perfect, who was sinless, the spotless Lamb of God. Because our sins did put Him there. We're not going to blame Pilate. We're not going to blame the Roman system. We're not going to blame the Jewish religious leaders. We're going to put ourselves there and we're going to say that what what we have done and what we have said and even what we have thought made it necessary for God to send the only human being who would ever live a perfect life and suffer in our place. Hallelujah. What a Savior. May we be moved, Father, in our knowledge of this historical Jesus to a love for Him who suffered for us. And may we suffer in soberness, but may we rejoice that such love exists in the universe. And that we, though we did not deserve it and weren't looking for it, would receive it. Thank you. Amen.